Section 26. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. Dinah Maria Mulock Craik, 1826-1887 Although the daughter of a clergyman of the established church, Dinah Mulock was not herself a churchwoman, and in her earlier works she frequently declares her belief in freedom of religious thought and action. She was led to take this attitude by her conviction that her mother was unkindly treated by her father, who, in her opinion, did not live up to the principles he professed. In a blaze of youthful indignation, she carried her delicate mother and younger brothers away from their home at Stoke-on-Trent, Staffordshire, and undertook to support them all by her pen. The Ogilvies, her first novel, was published in 1849, and her first struggle was successful, but she was soon deprived of the cause which she had gone forth to champion. Her mother and one of her brothers died, and she was left alone with her youngest brother to continue her work. Her loving description of her mother in My Mother and I will be remembered as the picture of a pure, tender, and gentle woman. Olive, and the head of the family soon followed the Ogilvies, and in the second of these stories she showed highly imaginative and dramatic qualities, though the plot is simplicity itself. After Agatha's Husband was issued in 1852, no other work of consequence appeared from her pen until the publication in 1857 of John Halifax, Gentleman, her most popular novel. It was the portraiture of a gentleman by instinct, though not by social position. He is a middle-class businessman, an inventor, who has solved certain problems of capital and labor, and upholds a true aristocracy, which he defines as the best men of the country. These, he says, ought to govern, and will govern one day, whether their patent of nobility be birth and titles, or only honesty and brains. She always maintained that A Life for a Life was her best book, a judgment shared by many of her friends and critics. John Halifax, however, continues to hold the heart and imagination of the many most strongly, perhaps on account of its democratic principles. Mrs. Craik, was an earnest advocate of legalizing marriage with a deceased wife's sister, and Hannah, a strong but painful story, deals with this subject. She published between forty and fifty works, novels, tales for the young, volumes of travel, and poems. She is a writer of the best sort of English domestic novels, full of strong moral purpose. She avoids over-romantic or over-emotional themes, but the tender and poetical ideals of ordinary womanhood find in her a satisfactory exponent. As a poet, 
Her position, though not a high one, is lasting. Her versification is good, and her sentiment is always tender, truthful, and noble. Perhaps her best verses are those given below. In 1865 she made a happy marriage, and as her life grew larger and fuller, her home became the center of a group of affectionate friends, artists, literary men, musicians, and many others full of intellectual interests and aspirations. She died suddenly but peacefully at her home at Shortlands, Kent, near London, on October 12, 1887. Selection The Night Attack by Dinah Maria Mulock Craik From John Halifax, Gentleman I could not sleep. All my faculties were preternaturally alive. My weak body and timid soul became strong and active, able to compass anything. For that one night, at least, I felt myself a man. My father was a very sound sleeper. I knew nothing would disturb him till daylight. Therefore, my divided duty was at an end. I left him and crept downstairs into Sally Watkins' kitchen. It was silent. Only the faithful warder, Jem, dozed over the dull fire. I touched him on the shoulder, at which he collared me and nearly knocked me down. "'Beg pardon, Mr. Phineas. Hope I didn't hurt ye, sir.' cried he, all but whimpering, for Jem, a big lad of fifteen, was the most tender-hearted fellow imaginable. I thought it were some of them folk that Mr. Halifax had gone among. Where is Mr. Halifax? Don't know, sir. Wish I did. Wouldn't be long a finding out, though. On he says, Jem, you stop here, would they? Pointing his thumb up the staircase. So, Master Phineas, I stop and Jem settled himself with a doggedly obedient but most dissatisfied air down by the fireplace. It was evident nothing would move him thence, and he was as safe a guard over my poor old father's slumber as the mastiff in the tan-yard, who was as brave as a lion and as docile as a child. My last lingering hesitation ended. Jem, lend me your coat and hat. I'm going out into the town." Jem was so astonished that he stood with open mouth while I took the said garments from him and unbolted the door. At last it seemed to occur to him that he ought to intercept me. But, sir, Mr. Halifax said, I am going to look for Mr. Halifax. And I escaped outside. Anything beyond his literal duty did not strike the faithful Jem. He stood on the door-sill and gazed after me with a hopeless expression. I suppose you mun have your way, sir, but Mr. Halifax said, Jem, you stop here, and here I stop. He went in, and I heard him bolting the door with a sullen determination, as if he would have kept guard behind it, waiting for John until doomsday. I stole along the dark alley into the street. It was very silent. I need not have borrowed Jem's exterior in order to creep through a throng of maddened rioters. There was no sign of any such, except that under one of the three oil lamps that lit the night darkness of Norton Berry lay a few smouldering hanks of hemp, well rosined. They then had thought of that dreadful engine of destruction, fire. Had my terrors been true? Our house, and perhaps John within it, 
on i ran speeded by a dull murmur which i fancied i heard but still there was no one in the street no one except the abbey watchman lounging in his box i roused him and asked if all was safe where were the rioters what rioters at abel fletcher's mill they may be at his house now ay i think they be and will not one man in the town help him no constables no law oh he is a quaker the law don't help quakers that was the truth in those days liberty justice were idle names to nonconformists of every kind and all they knew of the glorious constitution of english law was when its iron hand was turned against them i had forgotten this bitterly i remembered it now so wasting no more words i flew along the churchyard until i saw shining against the boles of the chestnut trees a red light it was one of the hempen torches now at last i had got in the midst of that small body of men the rioters a mere handful they were not above two score apparently the relic of the band which had attacked the mill joined with a few plough lads from the country round but they were desperate they had come up the coltham road so quietly that except this faint murmur neither i nor any one in the town could have told they were near wherever they had been ransacking as yet they had not attacked my father's house it stood upon the other side of the road barred black silent i heard a muttering the old man bean't there nobody knows where he be no thank god be us all ye ear said the man with the torch holding it up so as to see round him it was well then that i appeared as jem watkins but no one noticed me except one man who skulked behind a tree and of whom i was rather afraid as he was apparently intent on watching ready lads now for the rosin blazon out but in the eager scuffle the torch the only one light was knocked down and trodden out a volley of oaths arose though whose fault it was no man seemed to know but i missed my man from behind the tree nor found him till after the angry throng had rushed on to the nearest lamp one of them was left behind standing close to our own railings he looked round to see if none were by and then sprung over the gate dark as it was i thought i recognized him john phineas he was beside me in a bound how could you do i could do anything to-night but you are safe no one has harmed you oh thank god you are not hurt and i clung to his arm my friend whom i had missed so long so sorely he held me tight his heart felt as mine only more silently and silent hearts are strong now phineas we have not a minute's time i must have you safe we must get into the house who is there jail she is as good as a staff of constables she has braved them once to-night but they're back again or will be directly and the mill safe as yet i have had three of the tanyard men there since yesterday morning though your father did not know i have been going to and fro all night between there and here waiting till the rioters should come back from the severn mills hist there they are i say jail he tapped at the window. In a few seconds, Jael had unbarred the door, 
let us in, and closed it again securely, mounting guard behind it with something that looked very like my father's pistols, though I would not discredit her among our peaceful society by positively stating the fact. "'Bravo!' said John, when we stood all together in the barricaded house and heard the threatening murmur of voices and feet outside. "'Bravo, Jael! The wife of Heber the Kenite was no braver woman than you.' She looked gratified, and followed John obediently from room to room. "'I have done all as thee bade me. Thee art a sensible lad, John Halifax. We are secure, I think.' "'Secure! Bolts and bars secure against fire? For that was threatening us now.' "'They can't mean it. Surely they can't mean it,' repeated John, as the cry of, "'Burnin' out!' rose louder and louder.' But they did mean it. From the attic window we watched them light torch after torch, sometimes throwing one at the house, but it fell harmless against the staunch oaken door, and blazed itself out on our stone steps. All it did was to show more plainly than even daylight had shown the gaunt, ragged forms and pinched faces furious with famine. John, as well as I, recalled at that miserable sight, "'I'll speak to them,' he said. "'Unbar the window jail.' And before I could hinder, he was leaning right out. "'Hallo there!' At his loud and commanding voice, a wave of upturned faces surged forward, expectant. "'My men, do you know what you are about? To burn down a gentleman's house is hanging!' There was a hush, and then a shout of derision. "'Not a Quaker's! Nobody'll get hanged for burning out a Quaker!' "'That be true enough,' muttered Jael between her teeth. "'We must e'en fight, as Mordecai's people fought, hand to hand, until they slew their enemies.' "'Fight,' repeated John, half to himself, as he stood at the now-closed window, against which more than one blazing torch began to rattle. "'Fight with these? What are you doing, Jael?' for she had taken down a large book, the last book in the house she would have taken under less critical circumstances, and with it was trying to stop up a broken pane. No, my good jail, not this, and he carefully put back the volume in its place, that volume in which he might have read, as day after day, year after year, we Christians generally do read such plain words as these, Love your enemies, Bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. A minute or two John stood by the bookshelves, thinking. Then he touched me on the shoulder. Phineas, I am going to try a new plan, at least one so old that it is almost new. Whether it succeeds or no, you'll bear me witness to your father that I did it for the best, and did it because I thought it right. Now for it. To my horror, he threw up the window wide and leaned out. My men, I want to speak to you. He might as well have spoken to the roaring sea. The only answer was a shower of missiles which missed their aim. The rioters were too far off, our spiked iron railing, eight feet high or more, being a barrier which none had yet ventured to climb. But at length one random shot hit John on the chest. I pulled him in, but he declared he was not hurt. Terrified, I implored him not to risk his life. Life is not always the first thing to be thought of, 
said he gently. Don't be afraid. I shall come to no harm. But I must do what I think right, if it is to be done. While he spoke, I could hardly hear him for the bellowings outside. More savage still grew the cry. Burn em out! Burn em out! They be only Quakers! There's not a moment to lose. Stop. Let me think. Jail, is that a pistol? Loaded, she said, handing it over to him with a kind of stern delight. Certainly Jail was not born to be a friend. John ran downstairs, and before I guessed his purpose had unbolted the hall door and stood on the top of the flight of steps in full view of the mob. There was no bringing him back, so of course I followed. A pillar sheltered me. I do not think he saw me, though I stood close behind him. So sudden had been his act that even the rioters did not seem to have noticed or clearly understood it till the next lighted torch showed them the young man standing there, with his back to the door, outside the door. The sight fairly confounded them. Even I felt for the moment he was safe. They were awed, nay, paralyzed by his daring. But the storm raged too fiercely to be lulled, except for one brief minute. A confusion of voices burst out afresh. "'Who be thee?' "'It's one of the Quakers.' "'No, he beant. Burnin anyhow. Touchin if ye dare.' There was evidently a division rising. One big man, who had made himself very prominent all along, seemed trying to calm the tumult. John stood his ground. Once a torch was flung at him. He stooped and picked it up. I thought he was going to hurl it back again, but he did not. He only threw it down and stamped it out safely with his foot. This simple action had a wonderful effect on the crowd. The big fellow advanced to the gate and called John by his name. "'Is that you, Jacob Baines? I am sorry to see you here.' "'Be ye, sir.' "'What do you want?' "'Not with thee.' We want Abel Fletcher. Where is'n? I shall certainly not tell you. As John said this, again the noise arose, and again Jacob Baines seemed to have power to quiet the rest. John Halifax never stirred. Evidently he was pretty well known. I caught many a stray sentence such as, Don't hurt the lad. He were kind to my lad, he were. He be a real gentleman. No, he come here as poor as us and the like. At length one voice, sharp and shrill, was heard above the rest. "'I say, young man, didst ever know what it was to be pretty nigh vamished?' "'Aye, many a time.' The answer, so brief, so unexpected, struck a great hush into the throng. Then the same voice cried, "'Speak up, man. We won't hurt ye. You be one o' we?' "'No, I am not one of you.' I'd be ashamed to come in the night and burn my master's house down. I expected an outbreak, but none came. They listened, as it were, by compulsion, to the clear manly voice that had not in it one shade of fear. What do you do it for? John continued. All because he would not sell you or give you his wheat. Even so, it was his wheat, not yours. May not a man do what he likes with his own? That argument seemed to strike home. There was always a lurking sense of rude justice in a mob, at least a British mob. Don't you see how foolish you were? You tried threats, too. Now you all know Mr. Fletcher. You are his men, some of you. 
He is not a man to be threatened. This seemed to be taken rather angrily, but John went on speaking, as if he did not observe the fact. Nor am I one to be threatened neither. Look here, the first one of you who attempted to break into Mr. Fletcher's house, I should most certainly have shot. But I'd rather not shoot you, poor starving fellows. I know what it is to be hungry. I'm sorry for you, sorry from the bottom of my heart. There was no mistaking that compassionate accent, nor the murmur which followed it. "'But what must us do, Mr. Halifax?' cried Jacob Baines. "'Us be starved almost. What's the good o' talking to we?' John's countenance relaxed. I saw him lift his head and shake his hair back, with that pleased gesture I remembered so well of old. He went down to the locked gate. "'Suppose I gave you something to eat. Would you listen to me afterward?' There rose up a frenzied shout of assent. Poor wretches! They were fighting for no principle, true or false, only for bare life. They would have bartered their very souls for a mouthful of bread. "'You must promise to be peaceable,' said John again, very resolutely, as soon as he could obtain a hearing. "'You are Nortonbury folk. I know you. I could get every one of you hanged, even though Abel Fletcher is a Quaker. Mind, you'll be peaceable?' "'Aye, aye, summat to eat, give us summat to eat.' John Halifax called out to jail, bid her bring all the food of every kind that there was in the house, and give it to him out of the parlour window. She obeyed. I marvel now to think of it, but she implicitly obeyed. Only I heard her fix the bar to the closed front door and go back, with a strange sharp sob, to her station at the hall window.' "'Now, my lads, come in,' and he unlocked the gate. They came thronging up the steps, not more than two score, I imagined, in spite of the noise they had made. But two score of such famished, desperate men, God grant, I may never again see. John divided the food as well as he could among them. They fell to it like wild beasts. Meat, cooked or raw, loaves, vegetables, meal— all came alike, and were clutched, gnawed, and scrambled for in the fierce selfishness of hunger. Afterward there was a call for drink. Water, jail, bring them water. Beer, shouted some. Water, repeated John, nothing but water. I'll have no drunkards rioting at my master's door. And either by chance or design he let them hear the click of his pistol. But it was hardly needed. They were all cowed by a mightier weapon still, the best weapon a man can use, his own firm, indomitable will. At length all the food we had in the house was consumed. John told them so, and they believed him. Little enough, indeed, was sufficient for some of them. Wasted with long famine, they turned sick and faint, and dropped down, even with bread in their mouths, unable to swallow it. Others gorged themselves to the full, and then lay along the steps, supine as satisfied brutes. Only a few sat and ate like rational human beings, and there was but one, the little shrill-voiced man, who asked me if he might take a bit of bread to the old wench at home. John, hearing, turned, and for the first time noticed me. Phineas, it was very wrong of you, but there is no danger now. No, there was none. 
not even for abel fletcher's son i stood safe by john's side very happy very proud well my men he said looking around with a smile have you had enough to eat oh ay they all cried and one man added thank the lard that's right jacob baines and another time trust the lord you wouldn't then have been abroad this summer morning and he pointed to the dawn just reddening in the sky this quiet blessed summer morning burning and rioting bringing yourself to the gallows and your children to starvation they be nigh that already said jacob sullenly us men a gotten a meal thank ye for it but what'll become of the ittle ones at home i say mr halifax and he seemed waxing desperate again we must get food somehow john turned away his countenance very sad another of the men plucked at him from behind sir when there was a poor lad i lent thee a rug to sleep on i don't grudge ye getting on you was born for a gentleman surely but master fletcher be a hard man and a just one persisted john you that work for him did he ever stint you of a halfpenny if you had come to him and said master times are hard we can't live upon our wages he might i don't say he would but he might even have given you the food you tried to steal do you think he'd give it to us now and jacob baines the big gaunt savage fellow who had been the ringleader the same too who had spoken of his little uns came and looked steadily in john's face i knew thee as a lad thee art a young man now as will be a father some of these days oh mr halifax may ye never want a meal o' good meat for the missus and the babies at home if ye'll get a bit o' bread for arn this day my man i'll try he called me aside explained to me and asked my advice and consent as abel fletcher's son to a plan that had come into his mind it was to write orders which each man presenting at our mill should receive a certain amount of flour do you think your father would agree i think he would yes john added pondering i am sure he would and besides if he does not give some he may lose all but he would not do it for fear of that no he is a just man i am not afraid give me some paper jail he sat down as composedly as if he had been alone in the counting-house and wrote i looked over his shoulder admiring his clear firm handwriting the precision concentrativeness and quickness with which he first seemed to arrange and then execute his ideas he possessed to the full that business faculty so frequently despised but which out of very ordinary material often makes a clever man and without which the cleverest man alive can never be altogether a great man when about to sign the orders john suddenly stopped no i had better not why so i have no right your father might think it presumption presumption after to-night oh that's nothing take the pen it is your part to sign them phineas i obeyed isn't this better than hanging said john to the men when he had distributed the little bits of paper precious as pound notes and made them all fully understand the same why there isn't another gentleman in norton bury who if you had come to burn his house down 
would not have had the constables or the soldiers shoot down one half of you like mad dogs and sent the other half to the county jail now for all your misdoings we let you go quietly home well fed and with food for your children too why think you i don't know said jacob baines humbly i'll tell you because abel fletcher is a quaker and a christian hurrah for abel fletcher hurrah for the quakers shouted they waking up the echoes down nortonbury streets which of a surety had never echoed to that shout before and so the riot was over john halifax closed the hall door and came in unsteadily all but staggering jael placed a chair for him worthy soul she was wiping her old eyes he sat down shivering speechless i put my hand on his shoulder he took it and pressed it hard oh phineas lad i'm glad glad it's safe over yes thank god i indeed thank god he covered his eyes for a minute or two and then rose up pale but quite himself again now let us go and fetch your father home we found him on john's bed still asleep but as we entered he woke the daylight shone on his face it looked ten years older since yesterday he stared bewildered and angry at john halifax eh young man oh i remember where is my son where is my phineas i fell on his neck as if i had been a child and almost as if it had been a child's feeble head mechanically he soothed and patted mine thee art not hurt nor any one no john answered nor is either the house or tanyard injured he looked amazed how has that been phineas will tell you or stay better wait till you are at home but my father insisted on hearing i told him the whole without any comments on john's behaviour he would not have liked it and besides the facts spoke for themselves i told the simple plain story nothing more abel fletcher listened at first in silence as i proceeded he felt about for his hat put it on and drew its broad brim down over his eyes not even when i told him of the flower we had promised in his name the giving of which would as we had calculated, cost him considerable loss, did he utter a word or move a muscle. John at length asked him if he was satisfied. Quite satisfied. But having said this, he sat so long, his hands locked together on his knees, and his hat drawn down, hiding all the face except the rigid mouth and chin, sat so long, so motionless, that we became uneasy. John spoke to him gently, almost as a son would have spoken. "'Are you very lame still? Could I help you to walk home?' My father looked up and slowly held out his hand. "'Thee hast been a good lad, and a kind lad to us. I thank thee.' There was no answer, none, but all the words in the world could not match that happy silence. By degrees we got my father home. It was just such another summer morning as the one two years back when we two had stood, exhausted and trembling, before that sternly bolted door. We both thought of that day. I knew not if my father did also. He entered, leaning heavily on John. He sat down in the very seat 
in the very room where he had so harshly judged us, judged him. Something perhaps of that bitterness rankled in the young man's spirit now, for he stopped on the threshold. "'Come in,' said my father, looking up. "'If I am welcome, not otherwise.' "'Thee are welcome.' He came in, I drew him in, and sat down with us. But his manner was irresolute, his fingers closed and unclosed nervously. My father, too, sat leaning his head on his two hands, not unmoved. I stole up to him and thanked him softly for the welcome he had given. "'There is nothing to thank me for,' said he, with something of his old hardness. "'What I once did was only justice, or I then believed so. What I have done, and am about to do, is still mere justice.' "'John, how old art thee now?' Twenty. "'Then for one year from this time I will take thee as my prentice, though thee knowest already nearly as much of the business as I do. At twenty-one thee wilt be able to set up for thyself, or I may take thee into partnership. We'll see. But,' and he looked at me, then sternly, nay fiercely, into John's steadfast eyes, "'Remember, thee hast in some measure taken that lad's place.' may god deal with thee as thou dealest with my son phineas my only son amen was the solemn answer and god who sees us both now i now and perhaps not so far apart as some may deem he knows whether or no john halifax kept that vow selection philip my king by dinah marie mullock craig Philip, my king, look at me with thy large brown eyes, Philip, my king, for round thee the purple shadow lies of babyhood's regal dignities. Lay on my neck thy tiny hand with love's invisible scepter laden. I am thine, Esther, to command, till thou shalt find thy queen handmaiden, Philip, my king. O oh, the day, when thou goest a-wooing, Philip my king, when those beautiful lips are suing, and some gentle heart's bars undoing, thou dost enter, love-crowned, and there sittest all-glorified, rule kindly, tenderly, over thy kingdom fair. For we that love, ah, we love so blindly, Philip my king. I gaze from thy sweet mouth up to thy brow, Philip, my king, I, there lies the spirit, all sleeping now, that may rise like a giant and make men bow as to one God throned amidst his peers. My Saul, than thou brethren higher and fairer, let me behold thee in coming years, yet thy head needeth a circlet rarer, Philip, my king, a wreath, not of gold, but palm, one day, Philip, my king, thou too must tread, as we tread, away thorny and bitter and cold and grey. Rebels within thee and foes without will snatch at thy crown. But go on, glorious, martyr, yet monarch, till angels shout, as thou sittest at the feet of God, victorious, Philip, the king. Selection Too Late by Dinah Maria Mullock Craig. Too late. 
could ye come back to me douglas douglas in the old likeness that i knew i would be so faithful so loving douglas 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 tender and true never a scornful word should grieve ye i'd smile on ye sweet as the angels do sweet as your smile on me shone ever douglas douglas tender and true oh to call back the days that are not my eyes were blinded your words were few do you know the truth now up in heaven douglas douglas tender and true i never was worthy of you douglas not half worthy the like of you now all men besides seem to me like shadows i love you douglas tender and true stretch out your hand to me douglas douglas drop forgiveness from heaven like dew as i lay my heart on your dead heart douglas 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 tender and true selection now and afterwards by dinah maria mulock craig now and afterwards two hands upon the breast and labor is past russian proverb two hands upon the breast and labor's done two pale feet crossed in rest the race is won two eyes with coin weights shut and all tears cease two lips where grief is mute anger at peace so pray we oftentimes mourning our lot god in his kindness answereth not two hands to work addressed i for his praise two feet that never rest walking his ways two eyes that look above through all their tears two lips still breathing love not wrath nor fears so pray we afterwards low on our knees pardon those erring prayers father hear these end of section twenty six